Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Mostly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, Dr. Susan Bailey, president of the American Medical Association, talks about a new campaign urging folks to mask up. Mask wearing really is the easiest way to stop the spread of COVID-19. And so through our campaign, we're providing messaging and guidance to patients and also resources to help physicians reinforce the need for masks. That conversation in just a moment. Now, speaking of face masks and coverings, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed a new executive order Friday permitting local governments to enact their own mask mandates, but with stipulations. Now, you may recall Governor Kemp had sued Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms after the mayor issued her own local requirements, including requiring face coverings. So what's in the governor's executive order? Well, first, any local government can implement a mask requirement for government-owned property. It allows counties that hit a certain threshold to impose those mask requirements for public places. Now, a county meets a requirement if it has had 100 or more confirmed COVID-19 cases per 100,000 people over the last 14 days. Also, it can only be enforced on private property, including businesses. However, the owner or occupant needs to consent to the enforcement. Got all that? Now, the order also continues the governor's ban on gatherings of 50 or more people and still requires the most vulnerable to shelter in place. In other news, today is the first day of virtual school for thousands of students here in Georgia. Cobb, DeKalb, Fulton, Douglas, and Henry counties are all beginning the year virtually. Decatur City Schools, they're opting for virtual classrooms as well. Meanwhile, students at Creekview High School over in Cherokee County will switch to virtual learning starting August 31st. The school is closed for the next two weeks due to a spike in coronavirus cases. Now, Creekview is the third high school in Cherokee County to temporarily close due to an increase in those cases. And at this time, the State Department of Public Health reports there are 237,030 confirmed cases here in Georgia since March. And the reported number of deaths is 4,702. The number of hospitalizations has reached 22,087. And of those, 4,050 are ICU admissions. This data coming from the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, according to a report from the White House Coronavirus Task Force released just last week, Georgia is in a, quote, red zone for COVID-19 cases and testing. The federal report recommends closing bars and restaurants and enacting a statewide mask mandate, among other measures, to prevent the spread of the virus here in Georgia. And after that report was released, well, Governor Kemp's office released the state's own report, which a spokesman said, quote, dispute some of the findings in the federal report. This is Closer Look.
Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The American Medical Association, also known as the AMA, is launching a new campaign. And yes, it's all related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, join me now to talk more about this is the association's newly sworn in president, Dr. Susan Bailey. Dr. Bailey, thanks for taking the time and uh, congratulations on your new post. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And you've been involved with the AMA for a number of years. You're obviously being involved in the medical field. Let me get your thoughts on this before we get into the campaign. And I've been asking everyone this question, but what do you make of this extraordinary time we're in uh, from a public health policy? Well, it's certainly historic. Um, we have not experienced a public health crisis like this in over 100 years. And I, I think it has shown us how uh, vulnerable we really are to new infectious diseases, um, to a weak supply chain, um, to our healthcare system that has cracks in it. And it the coronavirus pandemic has pointed out to us what we need to focus on in the next few years to get our country healthier. We will beat it. I have no problem um, saying that out loud but uh, it's going to take us all working together. Could you have even imagined that back in February and early March when there were some concerns of, you know, okay, if the virus comes to the United States and the virus did come to the United States, and but now at the time of this broadcast, we are 5 million confirmed cases in this nation. Could you have even imagined that back then? I don't think I could have rose the the scope um, and the the length of this pandemic um, has been, I think, much greater than any of us, you know, even feared. Um, but I think we've got to remember the lessons that we um, learned in the Spanish flu pandemic, which was that we would think that we had it tamped down and then it would come back. And it cycled back for uh, a couple of years before it finally faded out. So I I think that we have to remember that even um, as we get this virus under control, that we can't let our guard down, that we have to continue um, with our basic public health measures, the Everyone's calling it the three W's now. Wear a mask, wash your wash your hands, and watch your distance. And also, here's what we're hearing from the medical world, from scientists. Five states now are accounting for more than 40% of all these infections. California, Florida, Texas, New York, and Georgia, where I'm located. You're down in Texas. What do you make of that? Well, I think it shows that densely populated areas um, are going to have the most trouble controlling this virus because it spreads from person to person and, you know, just highlights the fact that each of us individually has to take our, you know, actions to um, protect ourselves, which helps protect others. But I I think it's a lot of it is a population density issue. As you say that, I'm sure someone listening may say, well, Dr. Bailey, take that a little bit further for for me as a listener. Explain that. Explain why you think that that's the the big the big reason here. I know those are big states, obviously. California is a huge state, Texas. And then you look at New York, but the epicenter for New York was really around New York City. And, and there were some other outlining areas as well. But for our listener who may not understand that, dissect a little further when you say that. The densely populated areas like New York City, um, you know, like Atlanta, like Houston, 
um, the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, where I live, um, LA, these are areas where there's lots of people living close together. Uh, some of them have good mass transportation, some of them don't. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a matter of how many people you've gotten per square mile that's going to, you know, influence how many people, you know, get the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing right now one of the most common sources of spread is amongst family members, mm-hmm. and all of whom may live in, you know, obviously, in the same community, maybe even the same home. And that's where it's being spread. People are doing their best to stay home and wear a mask, wash their hands and watch their distance. But, but Uncle, they let Uncle Joe come over on a Saturday or they let uh, Aunt Sally come over mm-hmm. on Doug's birthday. And uh, that's where we see um, these little, you know, mini epidemics spreading. I'm curious, Dr. Bailey, what have conversations have you had with your own family members or close friends and they say, well, Susan, because they know you, they say, well, Susan, what do you think about all this? Do you, are you also giving them the same message? And my follow-up question is, have you had conversations with people who just don't think it's that serious? Some folks say, oh, it's just a really bad flu. And there are other folks who have other conspiracy theories or what have you. Have you had to have those conversations? Yes, I've had lots of those conversations. You know, my immediate family, you know, I'm insisting on strict social distancing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have seen my grandson once in person, and he doesn't live too far away uh, since his birthday in March. I have um, um, seen my sons just uh, once or twice since then, mm-hmm. we're not going over to people's houses. We're not going to our own family members' houses. We are staying home. We And when we do go out, we always wear a mask. And, and then when we come home, take a shower and uh, clean everything off. We're mm-hmm. just super, super strict about it. But um, there we have, you know, loved ones that just think, well, People are just blowing this out of proportion. Yeah, there might be some sick people someplace, but uh, I'm really, you know, I just really think that people are overreacting. And oh, golly, um, I would not want them to see the heartbreak that's going on in virtually every hospital in the country right now. Um, People critically ill and dying and not able to be with their loved ones because of the danger of spreading the virus. Mm -hmm. It's a real tragedy. And if you're not careful, it can happen to you. And now as president of the American Medical Association, you now are going to help lead this campaign, lead the awareness about COVID-19. Let's talk about this hashtag mask up campaign and how you all hope this will help. Well, the AMA launched the mask up campaign to to help normalize mask wearing uh, in the fight against COVID-19 and and also to try to debunk some of the myths that are associated with masks um, as we just in general try to combat misinformation about the virus. As I mentioned, um, the three W's, wearing a mask, washing your hands, watching your distance, Mask wearing really is the easiest way to stop the spread of COVID-19. And so through our campaign, we're providing messaging and guidance to patients and also resources to help physicians reinforce the need Mm -hmm. for masks. Is this challenging, Dr. Bailey, for your association because often there is misinformation or quite frankly, untrue information that comes from some of our elected officials, including the president of the United States. 
Is that challenging for y'all as, as an organization because you have to sort of combat that, but you're combating it with facts? It is a challenge, and um, but the message is clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, wearing masks work. They save lives. Init- and, and part of this, Rose, I'm going to go ahead and talk about some of the controversy around masks. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, when this disease first started, we didn't realize how the virus was spread from person to person. It was, they called it a novel coronavirus. It's brand new. We've never seen anything like it before. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't realize how much direct person to person spread there was. We didn't realize the number of patients that had minimal symptoms. I mean, it started off in, you know, flu season and then peaked during spring allergy season. So, we didn't realize that um, there were many, many people walking around that could spread the disease that didn't seem real sick if they were sick at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So we didn't recommend masks in the beginning. And plus we were so short of masks. We really needed them for healthcare workers who were uh, becoming ill and actually dying of COVID-19, trying to take care of critically ill patients with inadequate equipment. But then as the spring went on, we realized, oh my gosh, this is spread in respiratory droplets, close personal contact. It's not necessarily spread through other ways that we've associated with viruses and wearing masks can really make a difference. And now that we've had a chance to study it, we've been able to document that wearing a mask decreases your chance of getting coronavirus from someone else. It decreases their chance of getting it from you because you may be spreading it and feel perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. And if you're both wearing masks, the risk drops down close to zero. We all are aware of the incredible work that so many of our health practitioners, support staff, healthcare workers who are on the front lines. We've heard the stories about you mentioned it in the hospitals and, and especially for in the rural areas. What can you all do for your physicians and other healthcare practitioners during this time? And sadly, we've lost some as well to this virus. Yes, Rosa, it's an incredible tragedy. And I want to take this opportunity to thank all of the healthcare workers, the doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, essential workers, house cleaners, um, the housekeeping staff and the hospitals for basically going into a war zone every day and putting themselves in harm's way. And their dedication to the profession, to their patients. Um, has made all the difference in this fight. But the AMA is working to make sure that physicians have trusted, reliable, validated information uh, about coronavirus. We have a big uh, COVID-19 resource center on our webpage, ama-assn.org, mm-hmm. which is not behind a paywall. Anybody can access it and trying to make sure they have the most up-to-date studies, have guides on how to open their practices safely, have guides on um, how to uh, take care of themselves, have guides on how to do telemedicine, which has just skyrocketed during the pandemic. So we're trying to make sure that physicians have the information that they need to take care of their patients safely. And Dr. Bailey, we don't know where we will be a year from now, if there will be a handle on this virus, but what lessons do you hope come out of this as it relates to public health policy? What's the takeaway you hope comes out of it? My takeaway, my hopes are that number one, we'll work together to help rebuild our 
public health infrastructure, um, which has really um, suffered. We haven't had enough contact tracers. We haven't had uh, enough people to, to follow up on cases. Um, we've had a tough time getting enough tests distributed. I mean, just the whole spectrum. I hope that we'll come away with a um, a new understanding of how just to act in public every day. We may not ever do things the same way for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, we may be wearing masks for a long time. I, I think that's okay. I think we need to normalize that and kind of make it a part of our, um, you know, getting ready every day. I am hoping that we will be able to use telemedicine more often on mm -hmm. an ongoing basis because it's been so such a lifesaver for patients to not have to get out, uh, but be able to seek medical care with their own doctor. And I hope that we'll just gain a new respect for each other in realizing that we're all in this together. Dr. Susan Bailey, president of the American Medical Association. Dr. Bailey, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation, good information. Thank you so much, Rose, and stay safe. Thank you, you too. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It's called the Abolitionist Teaching Network, and part of the mission is this, to develop and support educators to fight injustice within their schools and communities. And there's a lot more. And it's spearheaded by Dr. Bettina Love, an endowed professor at the University of Georgia and an award-winning author of We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. You might recall some time ago she was a guest on this show to talk about the book. Well, now she's back to talk about the Abolitionist Teaching Network. Professor Love, as always, welcome back to Closer Look. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. Thank you. Before we get into the ATN, when you were on this program last time, much of our conversation was about gaps, gaps in education, racial gaps, equity gaps. And now there's this issue of this digital learning gap because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So basically, it's a bigger problem on top of an already existing problem in our nation's K-12 system. What are your thoughts on this moment that we're in right now as it relates to education? It is a critical moment. It is an, a moment of uncertainty. You know, I think we all would like to think that before COVID-19, that everything was okay and this pandemic has now put us in all these inequalities but mm -hmm. that's not true all the inequalities that are exacerbated by the pandemic were already there and so we're talking about we knew that low-income folks did not have access to the internet we knew that before COVID-19 this just exacerbated we knew that black and brown children were receiving less funding uh, there's a study that says that White schools in this country receive $23 billion more in funding than black and brown schools. 
we know that black and brown children have, are being suspended at high rates before the pandemic. So the pandemic just now exacerbates all these issues that we had. And now we're being forced to think about these issues because we're in a pandemic. But if we're being real with ourselves, we should have had equitable school funding a long time ago. We should have addressed this digital divide a long time ago. We should have been thinking about how we serve students in all communities a long time ago. So I think what the pandemic really has shown us, and I'm sad that it took a pandemic to see the humanity and the inequalities in teaching. So in terms of the disparity and these achievement gaps that are, as you just highlighted, we've known for so many years, and but they still come out in all these education reports. If we were in crisis mode before the pandemic, then for those millions of black and brown students, Professor Love, that you just talked about, or those from underserved communities, what are those potential academic outcomes after the pandemic for these kids? You know, we don't know. I mean, I, I just want to say clearly we don't know. We have, to be on, we have to be comfortable with saying we don't know. But what we have to make sure is that when we do reopen schools, whenever that is, we don't put punitive measures on them because of the pandemic. We don't test them and test them and test them trying to catch them up and then say, you need to repeat this grade. You need to do that again. We need to be very clear that however our students come back to schooling, we need to be able to be supportive of them and try to try our best to catch them up in ways in which we haven't done before, which means we're going to have to put some money and some resources behind when these students come back. I'm going to be very clear. I don't know what's going to happen at this time. I don't know how kids are going to log on. I don't know. I know schools and school districts are going to try their hardest, but this is a place that we don't know. And so what we have to do is really think about doing our best right now for students. And then when we when they get back, we have to be all hands on deck. I've been telling everybody right now, if you are a principal, you are a VP, you are a um, academic coach of some sort, I don't care who you are, you need to have a classroom right now online. You need to be working with students right now. There, there are no buildings. So what that means that it should be all hands on deck. I don't care what your position is in the school, get a classroom. Because we mm -hmm. have an opportunity right now to try and touch as many kids as we can, put them in smaller groups online, be creative and try our best to teach them at this very moment. But be ready with resources and innovation when schools reopen. So how much of what you just said is at the core of the abolitionist teaching network that you all will address? Is this part of the birth of this network? Yes. You know, we started this network July 6th of 2020, you know, a little bit over a month. And we have had an outpour from all over the world. We have raised almost $100,000 in a month. We have funders. We have a podcast. We have we've released a guide for how do you become an abolitionist. And the big thing that we want to do is help teachers become politically driven for change. Let's begin there then. Take our listeners through the moment of clarity then as you map this out. Mm. Because there's a lot packed into that statement you just said. Yeah, it really started with me writing the book, We Want to Do More Than Survive. And I've been very fortunate enough. You know, that book has sold almost 80,000 copies. And I've been really fortunate enough to go all around the country talking with teachers. And when I talk to teachers, they say, oh, we loved your book. And we read this book. And we read this book. So what do we do now, Dr. Love? And my response is very simple, organize. And I see the look on their face def deflated as if I had a magical wand. I don't have a magical wand. Mm -hmm. We got to organize. 
We got to show that there's power, power to the people. We say that for a reason. And so Abolitionist Teacher Network was birthed out of this idea that how do we get teachers who want to do something radical in their communities, have read, they know, they're energized, but they don't know how to be activists. How do we start to politicize them and get them be, and organize them to become activists in their schools and in their communities? So much of what you have always talked about, and even in the book, and even in your, your speeches, because I've seen them, this intersection of racism and education, which... Let's be clear. There's quite a history here in this nation. So with ATN, you're calling for radical minds and agitators, as you put it, to help lead this dismantling of systemic racism in education. So what tools are you equipping folks with to do just that? Yes. So the, the very first thing is that we want to have educators understand how racism functions in schools. We want them to understand how the policies that they're enacting is deeply embedded in racism. So one thing, we just had a workshop of almost 1,500 white educators talking about how to become co-conspirators, not, not, not allies, but co-conspirators. How do you start to understand that schooling is deeply embedded in ideas of white supremacy and racism? You got to understand that first. I can't ask you to dismantle something. You don't even know what you're dismantling. So number one, our goal is to educate folks in how white supremacy and racism functions in schools. And then secondly, how do you become anti-racist? How do you start to do that work? And then third, how do you start to say, I want to be an abolitionist? And what an abolitionist is, is someone who says, listen, these systems are inherently oppressive. These systems are inherently set up to be oppressive to black and brown indigenous folks. And what we are going to do is dismantle them. And we're going to dismantle them to create something better, more just, and more loving. How can they do that within their own school, their own school district? Or are you asking them to do this outside? So that's a great question. So what I realized is that most folks who want to change education are in education. They're beholden to the school district or their teachers, and everybody got a job, everybody got bills to pay, mm -hmm. baby girl needs braces, so-and-so going to college. So this idea of ruffling feathers and dismantling gets very difficult when you are a grown-up and you got bills. So what the Abolitionist Teacher Network does is that we will pay an activist out of our own money. We pay an activist to help teachers dismantle. So there's a third, so we go back to the teachings of the civil rights. Dismantle, dismantle, disrupt, outside agitator. So we pay an outside agitator. So what we try to do is find somebody in your community that is trusted, that people love, that's a community activist. That's, and, and we say, hey, how about you shift from your activism on police violence? How about you shift from your activism on environmental justice? Yeah, still do that. Mm -hmm. But what if we were to pay you to take all of that you know about organizing and protesting and dismantling and just shift that to these teachers and these parents for three to five years. And we'll pay you and give you the resources to do that. And so we want them to educate teachers to say, hey, this is how you go to this is how you go down to the school board and get it done. Let me show you. We did it. We did it with the police reform. How about let's do it with educational reform? And we will pay the activists to agitate. There's no model for this, Professor Love. So oh, you're, yeah. crea oh, I know. you're creating this. So <laughs> right. what's your response to someone that says, well, you're asking me to do this, but there's no model for this. You know what? That's what an abolitionist is. We build models. 
That's what it means to be an abolitionist. It, it means to say, we are going to create an alternative. We are going to create a new way of thinking. And there are, and it may not be a model, but I will say that the Black Panthers, the civil rights movement, these are models. What they use were outside agitators to come in and galvanize the community in ways in which they were already powerful to think about how they reform. And so that's what we want to do. Let me ask you this. Much of what you've always talked about and what I've read in your book and you talk about policies, how there are policies, intentional or unintentional, that have led to this systemic racism in a lot of our sectors, but we're focusing on education. So if it's all about policy, that means somehow enacting change. Mm -hmm. So whether you're disrupting or you're an agitator, are you addressing how we how we make policy changes here in education? So so yes. Yeah. So what we're addressing is that we want teachers. So what we would do is take the first year mm-hmm. and just look at the policies and practices that teachers and parents find harmful in that school. What are the policies? We're not interested in one lesson. We're not interested in one teacher. We're mm-hmm. interested in looking at policy and saying, hey, what are some, po- is this a dress code policy? Who's being suspended? We want to look at what are the curriculum and how is this curriculum impacting students? We want to take big issues mm-hmm. that a school is facing because that big issue is just a microcosm of that school district. And then we want to say, okay, how do we organize to get rid of that policy? And what are we going to replace it with? We're not just going to get rid of it. How do we replace it with something that is caring and loving, that is centered on children, that is rooted from what the community thinks is best? Are you only focusing on educators, those on the front lines with the students? Are you also focusing on superintendents, school board members? We are focusing on the individuals who want to be a part of the movement in their particular city. And so if that's teachers, if that's doctors, if that's lawyers, if that's cashiers, well, I don't care who it is. If you say, hey, something happening at this school or something in this district is not as harmful to black and brown children, then you are under the Abolitionist Teaching Network. And we want to work with you to do that type of work. And so we really want to be an organization. I mean, at the end of the day, Rose, what we really want to be is an organization that is feared. We want people to say, oh, this happened? I'm I'm, I'm going to call ATN. And then ATN is going to come and we're going to take care of that. A situation that happened just a few months ago that breaks my heart is the young girl who was put in a detention center. For not doing her homework? For not doing her homework. Mm -hmm. And what we know is that so much of that came down to um, these judges, the prison industrial complex that has now left the complex and now is in our actual homes through this whole Zoom. Like, how do you you police Mm -hmm. something in a pandemic through Zoom? But also, if that young girl would have had the money and resources for a top-notch lawyer, none of this would be happening. And so how do we now provide resources to parents in situations like this? We also want to provide those resources as well. You just said a moment ago you want the ATN to be feared if mm-hmm. if you all are going to get involved in, a, in an issue within a school or a school district. Through your lens, you feel that is one of the pathways to the outcomes that, you, that you've always championed. Yes, I feel you have to know that when you mess with black and brown children, when you don't treat us right, when you suspend us, you have situations every year where black and brown kids are being handcuffed, six years old, taken out of school. You have situations where black and brown kids are having 
you know, guns pulled on them at school. Like, how you have to know that somebody is going to hold you accountable for those actions. You have to know that. And right now, this is happening with nobody feeling as though anybody's going to hold them accountable for the ways in which they mistreat black and brown children in schools. Speaking of accountability, how will you all be able to assess for these people who are part of the network, the educators, anybody who wants yeah. to join in on in this movement? How do you, you all assess your own accountability for mm-hmm. their actions? You're training them. Mm-hmm. You're asking them to represent the network. But there's mm-hmm. an accountability here, too. How do you assess oh, that? I mean, that's that's the heavy weight of trying to do social justice work is that you do it in this vacuum of people think perfection, right? And there's going to be mishaps. There's going to be misunderstandings. And that's why we want our work to be over a long period of time. That's why we're not trying to come in and say, hey, we're going to do this and we're going to leave. No, we're going to commit our time and our money three to five years. You know, we're going to commit our time and our money to say we're going to make mistakes on the ground. We're going, we're going to, we're figuring stuff out in community. But hold us accountable to the things that we say that we're going to do. And what we're going to do is say after three to five years, what policy were we able to eradicate? Do what you policy f- were we able to change? Do you feel you need to also make that message clear? Do you need to also have a campaign so that folks understand what the Abolitionist Teaching Network is all about? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's why just a few weeks ago, we put out a guide saying, If you want to be an abolitionist teacher, this is what you demand. Mm -hmm. You want folks to know that, you know, don't just wear our T-shirts to wear our T-shirts. Wear our T-shirts because you are demanding the hiring of black and brown educators. You are demanding ongoing anti-racism training. You are demanding that we have restorative justice practices in schools. This is what we are saying we are about. And we want teachers to say, this is what it means to be an abolitionist teacher. What's the feedback been like so far? Oh, it's been amazing. I mean, it absolutely has been amazing. Like I said, we've raised, um, I got $100,000 on our own. We have another event coming up where we're going to teach, talk to white parents about what it means to raise anti-racist children. Um, We put that event out Sunday. We already have over 1,200 participants registered for that event. Uh, We have a podcast, our first podcast ever, 6,000 listeners already. Um, We have many funder meetings happening our webinar, we had a welcome webinar that has been viewed by over 70,000 people. Um, it's been amazing. I think people are hungry for this. I think all people, not just black people, not just brown people, not just indigenous people, all people who are thinking about how do we make this world a better place for our children are deeply engaged in the work of anti-racism and abolition. And so I'm just excited about all the work that's being done. I'm excited to be part of that work. And I hope ATN has a long, long life of disrupting, of challenging, and building spaces and schools that are alternative to the ones that we have right now. You are a professor at the University of Georgia. How long, though, before you think you may have to shift into full-time <laughs> mode for ATN? Well, you know, I'm realizing now ATN has become a big part of, of my daily day. Uh-huh. Um, I, I never thought that I would be in a role like this. It's it's not a paying role. I get paid nothing. <laughs> um, so I think I'll be a professor for quite a long time because ATM pays nothing. But it's it's love work. It's hard work. Um, it works. It works. That grounds me. And so I'm excited. You know, University of Georgia supports the work. I've been made an endowed professor there. 
Um, so I'm excited about, you know, try, because for me, teaching is also a way in which that I understand what's going on in the communities. I understand what's happening in education. Um, so I like having both roles, but it is pretty tough right now. <laughs> Dr. Bettina Love, founder of the Abolitionist Teaching Network, also an Athletic Association Dow professor at the University of Georgia. And we've been talking about the ATN Network. Professor Love, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate the conversation. Oh, thank you so much for always having me back. I really appreciate it. Please stay well. Thank you. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The nominees have been announced for the annual Emmy Awards. You may recognize a few of them. Who is a beauty? Those eyes be enough to turn a man to salt. Please don't take my man. Here, you will choose someone to marry. Hello. Nice to hear from you. Can't say see ya. Without ever seeing them. If you're ready to find the love of your life. Game time. The pods are now open. Are we safe? I guess we have ourselves a reckoning. Mom, what are we doing here? Your father's laundering money for a Mexican drug cartel. Honey, where's my five million dollars? Someone's going to die. It's a question I'll never have to answer. Where is my five million dollars? Clips there from Ozark, Watchmen, Love is Blind, and Dolly Parton's Heartstrings. Well, all these productions have something in common. They were filmed all, or at least in part, right here in Georgia. Now, those productions were among 50 Georgia licensed productions that landed Emmy nominations. Now, Georgia's film industry, like so much of the nation, did come to a complete halt because of the pandemic. And slowly now, some productions will try and return. And joining me now to discuss all of this in the state of Georgia's film industry is Lee Thomas, director of the Georgia Film Office. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rose. I'm happy to be here. Do you make it a point to try to see every production that is produced or filmed here in Georgia to make sure they have that Georgia logo peach? You know, when you're doing, I mean, we used to be able to do that when uh, I started at the office and we were doing six and seven projects a year. But now when you get up over two and three hundred, it makes it a lot tougher. I always thought, you know, we had a, a time at home for a couple of weeks I could catch up, but it turns out that's not the case. Well, speaking of what's not the case, I mean, right now, more than ever, if you're a creative mind in this industry, you got to kick it in high gear because projects are, are having to be reimagined how they're being filmed and produced. Through your lens so far, how are you assessing how the industry will respond during all of this? What's been your takeaway? Well, you know, absolutely, you know, shut down there the second half of March. Um, you know, we were on on track to have a record year. We ended up at about uh, $2.2 billion of direct spend as opposed to our $2.9 billion um, last year. You know, we, we report on a fiscal year, so mm-hmm. it's about two months short uh, with no production at all. So we were on track to have a banner year, but um, then everything, as you know, just completely shut down. And it's been a, a, a lot of trying to figure out what that looks like. Um, in a film, you know, production business of how do you make it safe? And I think people have done a very considered job, a very, a very good and thorough job of trying to figure out what that looks like. Um, you've seen Tyler Perry has already successfully 
mounted a couple of productions and we have 14 hiring right now, which is big news. So we look forward to, you know, kind of getting back on track. What role is your office playing in, first of all, either making sure these guidelines are being adhered to, helping set forth the guidelines and making sure that all these productions, that they are aware what is mandated and what is expected of them? Well, you know, we're not a statutory office. We're a marketing arm for the state, but we were the first film offices to come out with any kind of best practices. So we came out with those in June. It was a document that was, um, you know, made with input from Netflix and NBC Universal and Disney and, you know, with guidance from the CDC and the Georgia Department of Public Health. Um, and we put out a best practices uh, uh, kind of a document and it's going to be changing. You know, it has a lot of information about, you know, the PPE that is uh, is available in the state of Georgia. A lot of people have stepped up and, and transferred their skills to making PPE. So there's information about that and by department, you know, how to move forward safely. Now, these aren't mandates, but mm-hmm. we did that in, in advance of what we knew were going to be more uh, stringent guidelines put out by the unions. This is a very unionized industry, as you know, mm-hmm. the See the Teamsters, the DGA, um, SAG, Camera Union, they were all working with the Alliance of Motion Picture and television producers to come out with stringent guidelines. They had one set and they're moving forward and creating more right now. So uh, we know that those are going to be the ones that really kind of kind of hold everybody's feet to the fire on this. Well, you personally know you have experience because you've worked in the industry. You've worked on some major productions. I could I could go ahead and list them, but I don't want to embarrass you. So you understand both sides here, but you also know that if there's any confirmed number of cases or if there's something that happens, that could be so detrimental to the industry here. And you all have to figure out, you know, how do we combat that? So are you going on sets? Are you all sending individuals out just to kind of make sure that these production companies are adhering. I know you're not a regulatory body, but you all are responsible for marketing. So we are responsible for marketing. And the, you know, the great thing is, um, you know, these studios and most of our our motion pictures are from the studios or the mini majors, and they're going to be, you know, adhering to the, to the guidelines put out by the unions, but they have the most to lose. I mean, they are the ones that are putting all the money into it. If something happens, that could potentially mean a shutdown for that project. And so they really are going above and beyond is what we're seeing. And, you know, we see a lot of um, our local studios really stepping up and putting things in place, you know, be it, um, you know, pre-testing and zoning and, uh, you know, uh, changing out all of the openers for all of the doors and making them touchless and air filter systems, all of these things to try to help make sure that their crews stay safe. And I think, you know, I think that we're going to see that, um, you know, there's going to be guidelines here, but then I think you're going to see people go above and beyond because there, there's a lot of money at risk here and there's a, you know, they need to get their product made and they need to do, make sure that they're doing it safely. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Lee Thomas, Deputy Commissioner of the Georgia Film Music and Digital Entertainment Office or Film Office. And we're talking about the state of Georgia's film industry amid the COVID-19 pandemic, as many productions are now starting to come back online. You mentioned there's a lot of money here at risk. Obviously, also, we're talking about employees, workers. We all know the plight of so many, not only in that industry, but other industries. You think about the restaurant industry. Uh, When Governor Kemp made the announcement that 
motion picture, television, streaming companies, you all can now resume production activity. And that led to this excitement about, okay, now we're going to have more people coming back online to work for your industry, for your office. That's good to hear. Any idea, though, Director Lee, how many productions may be currently underway right now here in, in Georgia? I mean, in various stages of production, uh, there's probably, you know, 25 or 30 that are in pre-production or they're just getting started. Now, some of those were projects that were, that had started filming uh, before the shutdown. You know, things like uh, Vacation Friends, and then there was Red Notice that had actually been shooting. Um, We had some that were in pre-production that, you know, are just now starting to get ready again. And then we have projects like Ozark that, you know, they had just, they were, it was time for them to start pre-production and there's, they've started pre-production now. So uh, we anticipate that it's going to be a busy fall. Now, you know, it's really going to be up to these projects when they feel safe. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we say, yes, we're ready when y'all are ready, but it is incumbent on them to, you know, figure out how, what that looks like and when they feel safe, but, you know, we'll be ready when they are. And we know that we have a lot of crew people that are looking forward to getting back to work safely. When you look at Georgia's confirmed cases and the number is increasing and we've seen the number of hospitalizations increase, what concerns, though, do you have for your industry that if that trend isn't slow, that that might impact? And you may have production companies saying, you know what, we're looking at your numbers, Georgia, and we're not, you know, we're not comfortable yet. Those are concerns that you all have. Right. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that 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 is a real, real fear. And they, you know, they're looking at them every day and they're trying to figure out how to mitigate those as best as possible. And they're, you know, slowing down and speeding up and just trying to figure out what that window looks like. It's, you know, it's an ever changing landscape and we've certainly never been here before. So mm-hmm. absolutely, that, that could certainly impact it. You know, it, it does. I, I think it does help people that to make them feel better that Tyler Perry did it successfully and they, mm-hmm. they look is somewhat of a blueprint, you know. Well, Tyler has the money to do it, too. <laughs> right. Tyler has the money. He also owns a military base so yes. as well. But, yeah, they do look at that, and that is encouraging to them because everybody, you know, there's a lot of trepidation, uh, rightfully so. And, and uh, you know, all, all you can do is, 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 you know, we're trying the best to, to set them up. to. And we hope that, you know, the numbers will fall in line with that as well. Coming into this conversation, we talked about how production companies may have to reimagine how they shoot and film. Are you all having to reimagine what you all do? Over the years, we've gone so digital. It hasn't changed that much. I mean, you know, we used to uh, go out and shoot 35 millimeter cameras and tape everything together and FedEx up to the West Coast. That's how long <laughs> I've been here. So everything is so digital. And, you know, we have a big database and we get the scripts, um, you know, emailed to us and we break them down shot by shot and put together uh, location photographs and everything with our tax incentive is done uh, digitally. So it hasn't really changed, um, you know, what we do. It's been a great opportunity, this shutdown, to be able to kind of go out and shoot places um, and beef up our, our location library because usually we're so busy we don't have the time to do that. Mm-hmm. But it's to be able to go into downtown Atlanta when there's not so many people and be able to shoot great shots and everything else. and and have something to show people, you know, when it's time to come back. So It's nothing like when you're watching a movie and you see a great car chase and you see a martyr train going by. You're like, hey, That's I know right. exactly That's where right. that is. Uh, let's the talk. Point of pride. Absolutely. Let's talk about the future here. And 
how the landscape is changing, but you, will Georgia still, you think, be able to retain that, that top destination for movie and film and TV production, I guess, weathering this storm? Sure. I mean, when we're on the other side of this, there's absolutely no reason why, you know, we're not going to return to exactly where we were before, if not more. You know, the demand for content just keeps going up, you know, with all these new streaming services um, and, and, you know, one streaming service taking back their content from another streaming services. They've got a lot of inventory they need to fill. And I think they were already scrambling to do that. And this has really set them back even further. But, you know, I mean, the, the reasons why Georgia has been so successful you know, with a, a, a deep crew base, a diverse crew base, uh, the, uh, the airport, you know, with 26 flights a day to, to Los Angeles, these great sound stages. I mean, you know, the amount of infrastructure that has been built in this state, uh, nobody can rival that. I mean, we went from 45,000 square feet of sound stages in 2010 to 1.1 million of purpose-built and 2.1 of retrofitted soundstage space. So that means we can attract bigger shows, more shows, and we can house them, you know, and host those kind of projects. But all of those in diverse locations, you know, we have everything from the mountains to coastline to big cities to small towns. I mean, that's something that, you know, that we have that some states don't have. So all of those things, plus a great quality of life, people like to be here. Well, and the tax incentives help too. <laughs> oh, there's no question that without the tax incentives, you know, that, that, that absolutely, you're right. That's where it all starts. You know, when I started in the, in the film office, everything was location driven. And, you know, now those decisions are made when people run budgets and they determine where their money's going to go the furthest, you know, it's a business. And so if you're not on those short lists of the places where they're running budgets, you won't even be under consideration. So Absolutely, the tax incentive, but it's the whole package that makes Georgia so, you know, attractive. Your outlook on all this has been so positive through this conversation. Is there anything that concerns you about where this industry is headed? I mean, you know, once we get on the other side of this, not at all. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to get on the other side of this for sure. You know, we, we look forward to, uh, you know, not coming back to where we were, but even past that. I mean, you know, I think that we're going to be in a great place when, when we're on the other side of this. Whenever we get to the other side, whenever that happens. That's right. That's right. Do you miss being out in, on some of the productions and being involved? Are you enjoying being, you know, a director or would you rather be out, you know, on, on, on location and helping film a, a major production? I mean, you, you know, what we do more than anything is not as much location scouting as we used to do. Um, our office used to be that was the main uh, role of the office is to kind of show people what Georgia looked like. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's more logistics support. So, you know, a lot of the projects that we have here, they've been here time and time again. They know that they can find what they need and they'll, you know, hire location scouts and location managers. And then we're there to, you know, if they have problems getting permits or, you know, uh, road closures, street closures, we work with the city of Atlanta very closely um, to try to help them. But yeah, we're not out on set that much. We're mostly kind of, you know, where we are, but I do miss the location scouting because I think that's one of the best jobs ever. You get a script, you go, you know, get in your car and drive around to little towns and find people's houses. And, you know, it, it's it's great. It's great fun. So is there an area of Georgia that has become a top location spot? You know, there's so many now, right? Tacoa, Georgia has niche of, you know, they do a lot of smaller faith-based films. Rabin County's been getting a lot of films. Hmm. Of course, Sonoy, you know, that whole little town has changed so much. I mean, 
they were down to about six storefronts uh, before they got the Walking Dead, and now there are 85 storefronts in that little town. Really? They had, to, they had to build on another wing of it. You know, they have you know the Waking Dead coffee shop and the Woodbury shop, and you know Nick uh, Nick and Norman's, which is um, Greg Nicotero, who's the showrunner for Walking Dead, and Norman Reedus, who is you know one of the main stars of the Walking Dead, have a restaurant downtown and. You know, the fans come from all over the world to that town. So it's really reinvigorated that. So, you know, that is amazing to see those kind of um, those kind of stories. And they, they kind of, you know, are all around the state now. Mm-hmm. Savannah has seen a resurgence. Uh, they put in place a tax incentive in addition to the state's tax incentive. I got to tell you, director, because I'm from St. Louis, from Missouri. So and I watch Ozark and it's like, OK, how are y'all? replicating the Ozarks here in Georgia, but they do a pretty good job of it. Right. I'm not familiar with the area, but I have met people that say that they are from the area and they said, you know, it's dead on. And so apparently they've done a very good job. I'm a huge fan of the show and I hate that this is going to be our last season, but you know, I love it. Well, let's not give a spoiler, but what'd you think of the end of the last season? What that was, you know, my producer, my producer was just getting into it. So we won't, we won't, spoil it but what'd you think of that? <laughs> wasn't that something it was amazing it was amazing <laughs> it was it was you know lee thomas is the director of the georgia film actually it's the georgia film music and digital entertainment office but we would just say the film office deputy thomas thank you so much for taking the time i really appreciate it thank you so much i appreciate it you have a great day all right you too That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.